laws for me and my house. Thanks for joining us in your homes and around your tables as we dive into our study on Philippians, which we have entitled, Finding Joy in Every Season. Well, today we're asking the question, what is your greatest treasure? Is there anything of surpassing value? Anything that deserves your lifelong, passionate pursuit? If these questions sound familiar, uh, maybe it's because you heard the sermon from this last (laughs) Sunday where Pastor Andy was talking about the, um, was preaching from the parable of the treasure, the lost treasure, and the parable of the pearl in Matthew 13, 44 to 46. So in God's providence, we're really looking at the same question uh, just days apart here. What is your greatest treasure? And uh, this passage uh, we're going to see is really gold for us. Yeah, this passage today is so important. It shows what it means not just to know about Christ, but to know him, to find eternal salvation, and to find ultimate satisfaction in him. And the passage again that we are studying today is Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. And we're going to see today what true salvation looks like and what it doesn't look like. And the first thing that we see as we get into our text is that a true salvation rejoices. So chapter 3, verse 1 of Philippians. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So I love how Paul just says, finally. Now, this is, this is not like when the preacher says, uh, finally, and I'm about to wrap up, but then, you know, preaches for 15 more minutes. That's not what Paul's doing. He, he really means, so then. He's saying, so based on everything I've said so far, now rejoice in the Lord. And this rejoice, it's a command. It's a command uh, to, 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 um, to rejoice in the Lord. And Paul does this multiple times in his epistle of Philippians. And he's saying rejoice in the Lord. That, those words are important, in the Lord. Meaning rejoice in your union with Christ and in the person and work of Christ. Take a look at that first verse again and see that Paul says, uh, to write the same things to you is no trouble. The same things. Paul is referring to what he's probably taught them before in person. And these these same things is really the gospel. Uh, You know, every church, Lauren, it must be a same things church. Uh, We might might change some of the methods, uh, but the message never, ever changes. We we have to constantly remind one another uh, of the gospel, rehearse the gospel. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know, you know, sometimes I grew up believing that the gospel is something that you only share for unbelievers. It's just for them. But not so. Uh, The gospel is to be shared again and again among believers in our churches, in our homes. Um, And and because it builds up our faith. But Paul also says that there's a reason to share the gospel over and over again and to rejoice in it. And he says that it's because it keeps us safe. Notice that word safeguard. Um, So, we ought to ask the question, why is rejoicing in the Lord like a safeguard? How does it protect us? And uh, you could say it's like a gauge for the Christian life. It helps us see if we're in a danger zone. Yeah, joy is meant to protect us, as you were saying. One of the first effects of sin in our life, or doctrinal error, is that we lose our joy in Christ. And joy in Christ is also supposed to protect us against external ritualism. We need to guard against this. If, if we want to know if we're going through the motions of religion or growing in our relationship with the Lord, we should look at our joy. 
Joy is a fruit of our relationship with Christ. This is because the closer to Christ we get, the more we start to see the fruits of the Spirit in our life. George Mueller was an evangelist and orphanage director in England who is famous for his life and ministry of caring for over 10,000 orphans in his life. And, and joy was Mueller's first priority each day. He says, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how the inner life was not and how the inner life might be nourished so joy keeps us safe from temptation as well matthew henry said joy in the lord will guard you from the empty pleasures the tempter uses to bait his hooks makes me think of thanksgiving when i've eaten enough when i am satisfied you can't tempt me with another bite and in the same way it's hard for satan to tempt a joyful believer that is satisfied in the lord with the empty pleasures of this world So it keeps us safe, rejoicing in the Lord. And specifically in this passage, Paul is warning of the temptation of of legalism. Uh, Legalism, it's a subtle way of rejoicing in ourselves for our salvation and not in Christ alone. So this is a danger that was present in uh, Philippi. And this is what Paul is now addressing in these verses. What we'll see is that there was a, a legalistic framework of salvation that was you could say, prowling around the church in Philippi. It was aiming to sink its teeth into the heart of that church. And we know this because Paul goes straight into a warning here. In verse 2, he says, Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who who mutilate the flesh. Now, how is this for a memory verse? (laughs) Probably nobody had to memorize this one in Sunday school. But what we have here is, is... is three very descriptive terms uh, of one group that Paul is talking about. So there was this combative group that all through Paul's ministry, um, he had to deal with over and over again. They were called the Judaizers, and they followed Paul wherever he went. You could say they were false teachers. Um, and what was interesting about them is that, they, that these Jews had indeed confessed Christ. They had, but also... They insisted that in order to attain salvation, or at least to complete salvation, it was necessary for for everyone, for for Jews and and Gentiles alike, necessary to keep the law of Moses. And they had a special emphasis on circumcision. They would try to bind the act of circumcision and the law of Moses upon, uh, upon Christians. In a nutshell, they were trying to add to the work of the cross. And uh, specifically, circumcision they insisted upon as a means of salvation. So, this was a, 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 a threat hmm. um, in that they were undermining the gospel itself in the church. Mm-hmm. And so, Paul has a fiery description of them and one that's really full of irony. So, let's look at this. He says, dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of flesh. First of all, the dogs. Uh, Now, those of you at home who love your golden retriever, and rightly so, don't worry. Uh, This is not what it's talking about. We need to understand this is very different. Dogs in those days were not cute little pets. They were nasty, unclean, dangerous. Uh, They were pariahs that you could see prowling about in the streets, looking for garbage that was thrown there. Uh, You know, Lauren, I remember last year when I had the opportunity to go to Romania, Mm -hmm. 
that this was true there. They have these dogs. You can see them roaming around the streets. You can hear them howling at night. They kept me up when I was trying to sleep. But in comparing the Judaizers to these scavengers, Paul has in mind that their motives are greedy and their teaching is filthy. Yeah, and there's irony here too. Uh, It was always said of the Gentiles that they were dogs. That's what the true Jews called Gentiles. But Paul is saying the Gentiles are not the dogs. It's these Judaizers. So these Jews that think they're honoring God by acknowledging Christ, uh, but were insisting on keeping the Jewish law, they're the real dogs. And then he goes on to say, and evildoers. They're adding to the work of the cross, and that is evil. Anyone who changes the gospel or adds to the work of Christ is in essence a worker of evil. We don't always like to put it in strong terms like that, but it's, it's absolutely necessary because salvation is at stake. Yeah, so dogs, evildoers, and the third term was mutilators of the flesh. This was a term for, in those days, a term for the cults uh, that, that they would, you know, they would slash their bodies uh, for their foreign gods. And Paul has no problem saying that these Judaizers, Judaizers are just like them uh, as they insisted upon circumcision for salvation. And, and not because circumcision was a, was a bad thing, not at all, um, but because of their insistence upon it as essential, uh, essential to gain God's blessing and saving grace. So what we have here is that they were preaching a faith in Christ plus an addition. And um, what does that look like today? Um, that teaching still exists around us. Uh, what, do we, what do we trust in wrongly for salvation? What do we try to add to the work of Christ? We're going to return to that. But first, Paul makes a dramatic claim in verse 3. He wants to contrast those false uh, professing believers with true professing believers. And so he says now in verse 3, he says, he says for we are the circumcision. It's a play on words. The Judaizers are the mutilation and the Christians are the circumcision. The circumcision Paul is referring to is not the outward sign that the Jews were trusting in, but Paul's talking about the internal circumcision, the one of the heart. And uh, the one that the outward sign had always been pointing to, Paul was pointing to a changed heart. We have to get this. Uh, circumcision in, in the Old Testament was a covenant mark of God's people, but the Lord was always seeking to point to the heart with this sign. Lauren, could you, could you read Jeremiah 4.4? 4? Sure. Jeremiah says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord, or God says this, Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. So God wants them to be cut off from the world with a heart set apart for him. He never wanted them to trust in this external sign as a marker of salvation. Paul goes on to say that the truly circumcised heart, what it looks like. And he continues in verse 3. Now he's going to describe again who these true believers are, these circumcised of heart believers are. He says, it's those who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do we all see again that Paul is using three terms, three descriptors? Um, Paul is consistent. And here is the brilliant, savvy, organized mind of Paul. Um, and, and he's giving three descriptors of the Judaizers before and now three descriptors of true faith. Let's look and see if these are true in our lives. Um, John MacArthur says this verse here. He says, this is the best single verse 
uh, of a description of a Christian in the Bible. Mm. So let's pay attention to this. First of all, he says, Paul says, those who worship by the Spirit of God. What does it mean to worship by the Spirit of God? It's simply to have the Spirit of God in you. It's to be born again, um, born again by the Holy Spirit, a new creation, and we worship God in spirit and in truth. Um, an application of this is we can't worship however we want to. Mm. Um, we must not be like the Pharisees um, who just, Jesus said, they honor the Lord with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. We need to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Mm. And uh, I guess another way that you could say this is we need to have regeneration, not mutilation. So we need a, 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 a born again heart. This is true of the Christian. That's the first descriptor. Second, it says, and and to glory in Christ Jesus. Yeah, I love that. Glory in Jesus. He is our glory. We have no boast in our lives except him. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. So our greatest boast is that we understand and we know him. We have a real relationship with the living God. And he goes on to say that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So our glory is not in our own achievements or our beauty or our possessions. It is in the Lord and in our relationship with the Lord. Yes, and then we see the third descriptor of true belief. And it says, and, and puts no confidence in the flesh. This is really the, the negative side of what you just uh, hmm. talked about, Lauren. Um, so you were talking about in that, you know, just before, it's talking about confidence in Christ, glory in Christ Jesus. Hmm. We're boasting in him. And now on the flip side is the negative. We're not, we're not putting confidence in our flesh, in mm-hmm. ourselves. So another, another way to say it is we, we come to the Lord empty-handed. We don't come counting on us. We don't come counting on our rituals or our observances. We, we bring nothing to the table. And our, it's complete confidence in Jesus, in his works, in his sacrifice mm-hmm. on our behalf. So... Uh, it actually reminds me of that song uh, by Augustus Top Lady. Hmm. Um, Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Hmm. So that's a Christian. Uh, this is really neat to look at. This threefold description, born again by the Spirit, so you have a regenerate heart. Um, and then second, shown in the positive that you boast in Christ. And then third, shown in the, in the negative that you do not boast in yourself. Hmm. And so uh, we had a great picture of, of true belief. Mm-hmm. And now Paul is going to put himself forth as a case study. He's going to tell us, you know, if we could add to our salvation, if we could contribute, then Paul's going to say, look at me. I, I would have been the best candidate for this. <laughs> so we come to verse four. He says, though I myself has, ha- have reason for confidence in the flesh also, If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Uh, It says, I'm circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul's saying, I'm going to beat the false teachers at their own game. They want to tell other people that, that they know the right way. Paul says, Paul says, do you know who you're messing with? He says, here is my resume. Look at this. 
And there's no one who had a better record of spiritual achievement. If anyone could earn or add to salvation, it would have been Paul. So let's look at his resume. He says, circumcised on the eighth day. Uh, he was an eighth dayer. All that, all that means is he, he, he was in strict accordance to the law as, an, as a baby on the eighth day. He was circumcised. He was a genuine Jew from birth. So not, not a proselyte, a, a true Jew. Um, it could be someone today who says, I was born in the church, mm-hmm. right? Then he goes on to say, of the stock of Israel. So he was directly descended from Jacob. You know, the Arabs could not uh, boast of their descent from Jacob. They could only boast of their descent from Abraham. The Edomites could only boast of Isaac. But the Jews could boast of Jacob, who had prevailed with God and was given the name Israel for God's chosen people. Uh, so could every Judaizer make this claim of purity of descent? No, but, but Paul could. And then he says of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, Benjamin was an elite tribe. Israel's first king, Saul, was from this tribe. The holy city, Jerusalem, was in Benjamin's territory. The only tribe that remained true to Judah when the kingdom was divided was Benjamin. So it was an elite tribe. And then Lawrence says, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Yeah, the, or the purest of the pure. Both of Paul's parents were Jews. He was true to the custom of, customs of the Jews. He was not a, a, a Greek or Hellenistic Jew. He had the right upbringing. For the modern day equivalent, we would say he was raised in a Christian home, taught Christian values. But just being raised in a Christian home does not make you acceptable before God. So that first part of his resume is his pedigree. This is what he inherited, what his parents gave him. And uh, we could be relying on what our parents give us mm. uh, for, our, for our salvation. Um, but a, a more red-blooded Hebrew you could not find, mm. not more than Paul. So now we go from his pedigree to his performance. Here's what Paul contributed. He says, concerning the law of Pharisee, um, you couldn't be more serious about the Bible than to be a Pharisee. In all of Israel, there was probably about 3,000 Pharisees and the, the name itself means separated ones. So they're the super spiritual. They're the elite. Paul was like a walking Old Testament Bible. Then it goes on to say, concerning zeal, he was persecuting the church. And this illustrates his sincerity and enthusiasm for his religion. He was not lukewarm. He was all out lost 100 miles an hour in whatever direction he was going. Uh, if, if Saul of Tarsus walked into our churches today, we would be terrified. We would all be thrown into prison. He was sincere, but he was sincerely wrong. But he had the zeal, didn't he? And then we see also, it says, concerning the righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. Paul's not saying that he was perfect, but he's saying that he fulfilled the requirements of the law. So he had everything going on. Um, He was a pure-blooded Jew from youth. He served in the most elite part of Pharisaism, he was full of zeal, even persecuting the church, he followed all the laws. Uh, he had everyone beat. Mm. He really did. In terms of religious achievement, none could compare with Saul Tarsus. And so um, if we could add, if we could add to our faith, uh, Paul would have been exhibit A to do so. But what, he, what he's really showing us, what he wants us to see in his own life, is that you can be religious and lost. Mm. That's what Paul's showing us. Mm -hmm. And this was Paul before his conversion. He was lost but didn't know it. Mm. And here we have to pause and we have to say, okay, what about us? 
many churches are filled with religious people mm. who do not know God. Perhaps they were brought up with morality or Christian values, uh, but never came to Jesus Christ in their heart. We might be like the Judaizers. We might confess Christ as Savior and Lord, but at the same time, we're depending on our spiritual resumes. Uh, Could we be depending on our attendance, our membership, our tithing, our serving, and saying, here, Lord, take this. Uh, Take this for my acceptance. Now, what did Paul come to believe about his resume? What do we need to know and believe about our spiritual resumes if we're trusting in them? Paul continues with this amazing statement in verse 7. He says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Yeah, this is amazing. Whatever praise, accolades, or glory he received, he doesn't just say it was counted as nothing, but as as a loss. It was a liability. And in these verses, this is really, uh, really cool to see what Paul's doing too. Paul is using accounting language. Uh, he's, he, it's as, as if he is drawing a ledger with two columns. And on the one side, he's saying, here's the loss column. And on the other side is the gain column. So first, the loss column. Yeah, Paul considers all the things he listed and everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. To Paul, there was nothing that compared in the slightest to the worth of knowing Christ. And not even the worth, it's the surpassing worth. It just gets better and better. Paul is not concerned with knowing about Christ. The word here is very personal and intimate. It is a true and deep relationship that is spoken of here that is better than anything else in the world. Isaac Watts said, when I, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain, I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. And how did Paul come to that point? Um, he had a personal encounter with the living Christ. We, we know the story on the road to Damascus. He had to be knocked off of his high horse. And the same is, is true in our lives. Um, even if we had a religious upbringing, or, or if we didn't, we all must be brought low before we enter the narrow gate. It's been said that nobody struts into the narrow gate. And we have to see that we have nothing in our hands that we bring, only to the cross of Christ I cling. Uh, we cannot be religious enough or good enough to, to get to heaven. And so um, it's, it's, it's the, the one who says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So again, the question is not if you're a member of a church, if you're religious. The question is, have you had a personal encounter with the living Christ? Can you now say, I count everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus? Yeah, what Paul says in verse 7, he repeats in verse 8, and and Paul is not given to needless repetition. He wants to emphasize and re-emphasize something. He wants us to know that if we have Christ, we have everything, and if we don't have Jesus, we have nothing. In Christ, we can have everything money cannot buy and everything that death cannot take away. And Paul says to know Christ, not to know about Christ. You know, Satan knows about Christ, but to know him is to have a personal, intimate relationship with him where he becomes more real to us than the person sitting next to us right now. And and to know that nothing compares to Christ. So to be a real Christian is to know Jesus Christ. It has been well said that many people will miss heaven by 18 inches. 
the distance from their head to their heart. They'll know about him, but they will not truly know him. But when we're born again, our desire is to know him. And this desire doesn't go away. We want to know him deeper and closer and have a more intimate walk with him. And if we don't have that desire, we need to assess, are we, are we merely religious like Paul before conversion? Or do we know the living Christ? Charles Spurgeon once said, he who does not long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. Because when we truly know him, we will just want to know him more. Hmm. Yeah, so in verse 8, still in the lost column, Paul continues to say, for his sake, for Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Um, it, that's, that's that word there. It, it, it means dung. It's like animal dung. And that vulgarity is deliberate. Paul wants to strike us with the worthlessness of a life apart from Jesus. Uh, a life of religious self-effort uh, for salvation is, is dung. It's, it's, that's a great loss. And so he says, I repudiate all of that as a way, to, as a way of salvation in order that I may gain Christ. That's the end of verse 8. In order that I may gain Christ. Now, he, now, so here's the gain column. Let's go to the other side of the ledger. Mm-hmm. The gain column, he says in verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. There's a lot of words in that verse, mm-hmm. but here in a nutshell, in verse 9, is justification. Mm-hmm. It comes by you being found in Christ. This is how we're made right with God. You're found in Christ. So you've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And um, this great exchange of justification is when we believe on Christ. He takes away our sins and we receive his spotless record before the Father. We're declared righteous. This is something we can't do by, by attaining, uh, we can't attain by obeying the law. And notice now these two things in this verse. Now, it's a gift. It says it's from God. Those little words, from God. Okay, so it's a gift. And second, justification is received by faith. Um, you know, this is Christianity 101 in a sense, and yet isn't it so easy, easy Lauren, for us to fail in this, mm-hmm. to forget this, that it's a gift from God and we receive it by faith. And this is why Paul says it twice in that verse, that it, that it comes through faith, that it depends on faith. Justification is God's work, it's secured by Christ's death, and it's simply appropriated by faith. So this is the gain of justification, and we need to count all the other things as a loss before God. Yeah, so I think it's good to ask, what about us? What do we need to count loss today? Maybe, maybe, we're trying to, maybe we're not trying to earn a right status before the Lord with our good works, but are we trying to earn a right standing with the world by the way we act, dress, what we drive, what we wear, what we do, how high we climb the ladder. All this is loss. All this is rubbish. All of this does not compare to the reality of knowing Christ and being found in him. Mm-hmm. And Paul continues to say, here's the, here's the driving passion of his life. In verse 10, he says, that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. And let's see this, that Paul is really walking us through the Christian life. In verse 9, the preceding verse, it was justification. That's how the Christian life begins. And now in verse 10, which I just read, is is sanctification. As soon as we're justified, God begins the work of us being sanctified. Uh, That is to become more like Jesus. It's a lifelong endeavor. And verse 10 is all about this. 
sanctification, um, what we see here also is that this too comes in three parts. Paul really likes to work in threes, doesn't he, Lauren? Mm-hmm. So there's three parts to this verse as well. So Yeah, he goes on to say that, that he may know Christ. He just wants to know Christ more. And I know this desire, just a, a closer walk with thee. Grant it, Jesus, is my plea. So do, do you have a conviction that knowing Jesus more is the good life? I just want to encourage those of you who have known the Lord for many years, but have not experienced this type of satisfaction in your relationship with the Lord, to make meeting with him in the word and in prayer a priority. You know, I did not experience this communion with Christ when I first became a Christian. I knew forgiveness of my sins. I was so thankful. But when I actually made this relationship with him a priority, everything changed. Uh, It was just impressed on my heart that he must be first. And that is when true deliverance from the power of sin came. And that's when the satisfaction in Christ came in its fullness. That's when the joy and peace came in abundance. So, so I would just urge you to make it a true priority to spend time with him. So it's good for us to ask what stirs up our affections for Christ. Maybe for you it's early mornings in the word or good books or friends that love him. And it's good to ask what dulls our affections for the Lord. Is it social media or TV or movies or shopping? Uh, it's good for us to have those questions and to um, do those things that stir up our affections for Christ. And as we know him more, um, what happens is, is the second part of that verse that um, we'll know the power of his resurrection. And uh, that's the second thing of sanctification, the power of his resurrection. And this is amazing. This is talking about the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in us. Uh, so that's the, the, the same power is available to make us holy, to make us mature. We can actually grow in our lives. Um, men, as husbands or dads, uh, we, can, we can grow as as yeah, in all parts of life. And so the more that you know the person of Christ, the more that we will know the power of Christ. And let's just take a quick note here. This is telling us that works, um, at, works are important. Let's, let's not mix that up in this study. Mm-hmm. Um, our works do matter. Our holiness matters greatly. But what we see is that they are evidence of faith. They are the fruit of faith. They come from our faith. They're not, they're not trying to earn our salvation, but come out of it. And so that's the power of the resurrection. Yeah, and I love, there's, there's a verse in Second Peter that says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness, and it comes through our knowledge of Him, through knowing God intimately. So if Christ in relationship with Him is precious to us, we will know His power in our everyday life. And then Paul says that, that he may share in Christ's sufferings. This is the third piece of sanctification. This is probably not something I would write on a list of things I desire. I would definitely want to know Christ more. I would want to know more of his power, but to suffer more. Yeah, this sharing in his sufferings, part of our sanctification. Um, you're right, Lauren. It's not something that we all uh, are so eager for. And, um, but Paul learned something in his suffering. Uh, the more that he suffered, the more he knew communion with Christ, uh, the, the more he knew fellowship with Christ. And it's a reality uh, in this life that those who suffer with Christ know him in a special way. And so... Yeah. And we, we are promised hardship and suffering in this Christian battle, which is a war. And if we truly love Christ, we know we will be mocked, we will stand out, we will take flack, have opposition, might be the object of 
sarcasm. Maybe we'll lose a job or lose a relationship. I know that my own experiences, you know, people were, uh, that I grew up with, um, just, it was, it was very hard for them when I became a Christian and decided, um, to live for the Lord. But we need to keep perspective through this, that we have a glorious future. We are rewarded for any pain or reproach we endure, and we get Christ. We get to know his very presence with us through our pain. Yeah, and that's the next verse here. It says, finally, it says, becoming like him in his death, verse 11, that by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So here is like the last big piece of the Christian life. This resurrection from the dead. This is glorification. Mm. So again, Paul's walked us through justification, sanctification. Now in this verse, glorification. Paul was looking forward not only to heaven, but his own resurrection. That's the word in that Mm. verse. And he knew that his body, his own body, would one day be raised from the grave, never to die again, just like Jesus's. Um, Never to have sickness or pain ever again. Uh, you know, in the church, we, we, often, we often focus exclusively on going to heaven, which is not wrong. Not at all, of course. But there is a greater reality when Jesus returns, where our bodies, the bodies that are in the ground, will, will rise. And, and the spirit, our spirits will return to our bodies. And we will be with Jesus, not just in spirit, but physically. This is all in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, verse 20 there, it says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. There is a glorious redemption coming for our, our spirit, soul, and bodies. This will be our glorification. So we need to just review these columns, columns again. On the one side is loss. We can depend on ourselves, depend on our upbringing, our do-gooding uh, for our acceptance before God. And this is a serious threat in the church and in our own thinking. We can drift there. We can miss the gospel. But if our stock is in those things, that market will crash. It is a loss. And on the other side is gain. And that is to depend on Christ alone, his person and his work. And this is ultimate gain. We're justified. We are being sanctified. And we will one day be glorified. Well, we want to wrap up our study again, asking the question, what is your greatest treasure? What do you love the most? And have we honored Christ with our lips and thought we could get his favor through religious activity, but our hearts are far from him? And if that's something we've discovered today, this is a call to repent, uh, to turn away from that way of thinking and believing and to turn to Christ and to come to know true communion with him. To know that justification comes by faith, not by the law. To know that sanctification comes through Christ living in you. This is good. This is great. And then, and then thirdly, to have hope in the future glorification of the resurrection. Well, may we consider all the gain that there is in Christ and all other things as a loss in comparison May we um, seek out the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, Jesus as our Lord. Can we pray together? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you really are the greatest treasure. And help us to rejoice in you. We confess we so quickly want to rejoice in ourselves and what we think we can contribute to our salvation. We can't, Lord. Thank you that you have accomplished everything for us. So let us rejoice in you. 
Lord, give us discernment to see when the true gospel is being attacked, because we know that will happen um, in churches and in our lives. Help us to see clearly and to focus on Christ alone for our faith and salvation. And uh, we just thank you today that you truly are the treasure, that the surpassing worth is in you. And so we want to just end this note in rejoicing. And we thank you and praise you in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to continuing in Philippians chapter 3 with you next week.